Welcome to God Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Scott Stokely. Scott is a professional disc golf player. He's broken many Guinness Book of World Records. He's also author of the book Growing Up Disc Golf. We have an amazing conversation. We talk a little bit about disc golf, which is basically golf where you're throwing a frisbee. It's a great, fun sport. And he also has just an amazing life where we talk a lot about just like self-growth, development, motivation, addiction, recovery. It's a great listen, so I hope you guys enjoy. Check me out on Instagram at NewerKidY. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And we're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records, so check them out too. Let's get into this week's episode, everybody. My guest this week, Scott Stokely. Alright, welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. I'm here with Scott Stokely. Scott, thanks for joining me, man. Thank you so much. And by the way, I was happy to hear that this is audio only because I was running late and I ran out of the shower and I didn't put pants on. Oh, <laughs> I, don't know, I think I want to make a video now of this if that's the case. <laughs> No, you no, you don't. And by the way, I apologize for the visual of the 53-year-old without pants. No one wants to think that, so uh, you can edit that out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'm definitely keeping that one in. <laughs> uh, Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Um, just to let my audience know, uh, you're pretty much everything disc golf. You almost were... You might have been back at the beginning of disc golf. I'll let you answer that question. But uh, you uh, you have a new book out, Growing Up Disc Golf. It's been out for a couple of years. And, um, yeah, just talks about your just an interesting life that you've lived. And uh, you've just a part of so many cool things. Uh, yeah, anything you want to add to that, man? Uh, well, actually, I was there at the beginning. I, I actually played my first round of disc golf on the world's first course when it was the only course in the entire world. Hmm. So I actually did start at the beginning. Now, the game had existed before then, but it hadn't been formalized. They were, they were introducing it at tournaments because, you know, Frisbee was new. And so uh, I, I certainly wasn't there for the invention of the game. But the, when the first course went in, I was within a month, I was on the course. I was seven years old, but I, I was I was there. <laughs> no, that is so cool. I think that's amazing. And uh, the way I got uh, in touch with you, my one of my best friends, uh, we had his wedding this week, uh, year. We went on his bachelor party. He took us to this disc golf course, which was on like like in this guy's land, private property on the side of cliffs. We were just losing discs. It was such a hard course. Uh, but uh, he's like a huge, huge disc golf fan and a huge fan of yours. And he started reading your book. And he uh, like, yeah, he basically is a fan of my podcast, too. So he got a hold of me. And he's like, you got to get this guy on the podcast. So I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so this is amazing because we haven't really spoken before, but, you know, you have no way of knowing this. But one of my bucket list items was to be the entertainment at a bachelor party. Oh, really? <laughs> so, oh, that's amazing. Well, your pants are off. So I think we made a good start there. Eh? You know, you know, I love when you start talking, you realize you're spiraling, but you can't get out of the hole. 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. Uh, all right, let's uh I want to kind of like get a little bit about your story. So like maybe let's start back up at when you first kind of got into uh uh disc golf and you were on this like the first course like you're talking about and like yeah, maybe tell us about your childhood. You so you say you're a latchkey latchkey kid. Like uh, maybe to kind of tell us about your childhood and how you got into disc golf. Well, I was basically just a uh, you know, kid from a uh, blue collar neighborhood. Uh, my dad died when I was seven, so I got into disc golf, well frisbee golf back then because my mom would take me to the parks in the area, and. Mm -hmm. You know, one park would have a merry-go-round I loved. One would have the biggest swing set. One had a Frisbee golf course. None of that was unusual to me. It was just different parks had different things to do. That was just a thing to do. No idea that this was going to be part of our, you know, uh, an actual sport or history. It was just a park activity that I fell in love with. My mom, when I was 12, because I at the time I lived about seven miles away, so I didn't play regularly. But, you know, that was within the circle of parks, right? Mm -hmm. When I was 12, my mom's business started taking off. And we moved to a very rich, white, conservative, upper, well, actually, it's not upper middle class, rich neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't fit in at all. Like, my mom, <laughs> like, she scratched enough to be at the bottom of that social ladder in that town. So... I didn't have the cool, expensive bike. I certainly didn't have the clothing. I didn't fit in. I didn't make friends. But 300 yards away was the world's first Frisbee golf course. So I had something I could do to entertain myself. And the course was on the other side of the tracks, you might say. Like, there was one road that had our town on one side, and the other side was this park where all these hippies hung out and... Uh, a lot of partying going on. People in my town, it's not an exaggeration, they would not let their kids go play in that park. That was the bad park across the street. But those were my people. Like, those were the, the people that I grew up with. I, like, I grew up <laughs> being half raised by drunks. And so, <laughs> you know, to me, like, that was just, that's where I got my connection. I loved the sport, but I was also adopted into their community. And so I, you know, in hindsight, you know, I probably was trying to find a father figure or some cliche thing. It's probably true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's it. And well, yeah, that's awesome. And what uh, what town was this that you grew up in? Well, I grew up in Locking Out of Flint Ridge, and my my suspicion is it's no longer as hoity toity as it used to be. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha you know, times change, and so the you know social elitism is not it's not like it used to be. Um, but in, you know, in the eighties it, it was, and, but across the street was Pasadena, which is not a bad town at all, but this is a town, uh, the, the park that was way out of the way. It was basically unsupervised. The cops had to drive like the next 12 minutes out of their way around the Arroyo Seco, this big ravine to get there. They just left it alone. Mm -hmm. So it came this kind of thing that got ignored and that's why it became a, a party park. And yeah. And that actually, within the early days of the sport, is a big reason the sport took off because, like, who does this new thing in the park? Well, we had a park full of people that already were hanging out there that yeah. gave do. And so that was the early days of the sport. It was, I used to say that people um, didn't, didn't drink and didn't party when they were playing Frisbee golf. They played Frisbee golf while they were drinking and partying. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, 
a lot of sports have a rich history. Baseball is far richer than ours, but that, that is where we came from. No, that's amazing. And uh, so when you, uh, this was, you're 12 years old and this is when you're kind of uh, seeing this and being around this. And I like how you said, like, you weren't fitting in and then this is how you found community. I find that like really kind of like a beautiful thing. Eh? It is. I mean, they, they, they adopted me. I was, I was welcomed with open arms to this day. That's the best thing about disc golf is that every single person is welcomed into the community. There is no social status. No one cares about what you do for a living, the color of your skin. Uh, you know, if you're man, woman, like doesn't matter. Like this is a sport that just welcomes everybody and still does. That's uh, that's amazing. Um, so when so if this was 12 and then you start, this is kind of where you're learning to become like or just learning all the skills of uh, disc golf and everything. When did you see like your skills start taking off? And also, like, when did you see the sports start taking off? So I started I, I was good early. Um, I won my first major tournament when I was 17 mm. and I was beating world champions, you know, 10 years older than me. And uh, so I, I was one of the young and up and coming kids, I mean, any new sport, the next generation is better than the one before it, right? We're figuring stuff out. So it's not unusual, but I got good early. Uh, the sport, it never had, up until a couple of years ago, it never had a taking off moment. The thing the sport had, and this is based on actual measurable data, like how many members of the professional disc golf association, how much prize money is given out at tournaments. Like there's ways to measure this courses mm -hmm. in the ground. The sport basically grew 10 to 15% a year for 40-something years straight. It never had a dip. It was just a consistent growth. It didn't have a moment until a couple of years ago when the plague hit. People were looking for outdoor activities. People were looking for things that cost less money. People were looking for things that could be socially distanced, uh, get exercise because they were <laughs> they were waking up and working in their beds on their laptops 40 hours a week. It was just a like a perfect convergence of the greatest activity in the world for, a, you know, international disaster. <laughs> yeah, like it's, a, it's a good plague activity. Eh? <laughs> it, by the way, I say plague so you don't get demonetized. I don't know what <laughs> platform, but we'll call it the plague. <laughs> but you know, it was one of those things that the thing about about disc golf is that if you try it, you enjoy it. Like the percentage of people that try it and then walk away going, eh, that's not for me, is almost none. So it's always been just how do you get people out? Well, people were just starved for things to do. And when they went out and tried it, they went, oh, my God, I've seen these baskets by my house for the past 12 years when I drive to work. I, I never stopped to play. A lot of people might even say they thought it was funny that people were playing. And then they play and they go, oh, oh, shit, this is cool. And that's where we're at. And, and now, I mean, the explosion is like, it's insane. I mean, there's probably, I think, between five and seven times as many rounds of disc golf played in the U.S. as ball golf. Mm -hmm. And like, you're still playing too, which is amazing. And like, uh, we were just talking before we uh, ended up recording this. And uh, you were saying right now, you're like a full-time nomad. You're like really pretty much traveling all the time and you're doing different tournaments and all of that stuff. And you said you're 53 years old, which is uh, amazing. Um, how do you like, is, was it different than when you were doing it when you were younger to find that motivation to keep continuing this? I mean, it's definitely different. I mean, when I did it, when I was younger, I was really poor. Yeah. I used to travel. <laughs> We would always stay at people's houses. We'd crash on their living room floor at tournaments. 
which was never a big deal. That's part of the culture of the sport. You know, you, you were couch surfing when you were touring. Um, you were eating at gas stations. You were, I mean, you, it was a struggle. And now it's not a struggle, not because of prize money, uh, but because of all the different ways you can monetize your 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 business around the sport. I do seminars, I do clinics, I do lessons, I do online disc golf classes. Uh, by the way, scottstokely.net is where you can find all of that. Um, I, but I endorse products and I have a line of barbecue sauce and I wrote a book and, you know, so now I'm not poor. So that's different. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I certainly appreciate it more now because I've lived in the real world. You know, when I was younger, it was the best, but I had didn't have as much to compare it to. And now that I've lived in the real world and have gone back out, I'm like, yeah, this is this is pretty neat. Dad, <laughs> <laughs> do you have to like uh, for like fitness wise, like do you have to like keep your fitness like at a certain level just like to compare like because I guess you're competing with younger guys um, like in other sports, you like a younger guy might be more uh, like be able to have be more powerful or something maybe. But like or do you have to keep your fitness up? Oh, yeah, 100 uh, percent. I'm actually <clears throat> excuse me. I, I'm diligent about it. Uh, when I decided to go back on the, so I was traveling. Well, I'll, let me. So I I toured for years. I quit in 2001. I came back in 2014. Uh, that was after the problems with with addiction and mental health issues. I came back mm. to the sport, uh, and I went back out and started traveling again. I was playing tournaments and running events and teaching and doing things. But this last year, I went back on the actual pro tour after a 22 or 21 year absence where now it's I'm competing not in my age protected divisions because I was playing with the 40 year olds and the 50 year olds but I'm playing against the the, the best in the world and to do that uh, I I spent a, to get prepared I spent about a year in the gym like two hours a day four days a week three uh, 300 200 grams of protein a day like no carbs like I was <laughs> yes, I put my I put my body into uh, as good a shape as possible. Not because I couldn't physically keep up with them as far as power, distance, things like that, but I I couldn't train. Mm. If you're a ball golfer, like you could still hit the ball. It's you know, like I'm sure that every 53 year old ex PGA pro could hit a ball far enough to compete. Is mm -hmm. can you go out to the driving range and hit 500 balls when you're 53 years old? Well, no, <laughs> you can't. I mean. I don't think so. I put, I had to be in shape to be able to train. And even then I could train as much as I wanted to, but I could train enough. That's so cool. Oh uh, yeah. That's really cool, man. Um, I'm happy that you're back out there and like, how, how's the tour been going? Have you been uh, like uh, placing or anything? Um, they're the, the kids are really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I actually, you know, look, I'm, I'm never competing in a tournament that I'm not trying to win. I always believe I can win. You know, that's the, uh, the delusion that any professional athlete has. Like we have oh, the delusion. You have to. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. There's, there's a correlation between that and, uh, and success. Uh, I did not win any tournaments this year, any pro tour events. In hindsight, when I look back, I'll probably be pretty proud of it because I cashed, which means I finished in the top 30% of the field mm -hmm. more than half of the events. 
So I was basically a middle-of-the-pack player, which is not my goal. It's not where I was. But to give you an idea, prior to going back out on tour, I traveled and toured with the 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds, like in what you call maybe a senior tour. And I won exactly 70% of my tournaments. Wow. So I'm more than two-thirds of the time to, you know, just cashing. Uh, but middle-of-the-pack meant that I belonged. Like I'm good enough to be out there. If I'm if I'm on the NBA team, I'm the I'm like the first guy coming off the bench, right? Like or sev- the seventh best player on the team, right? I'm not starting, but I'm certainly good enough to be one of the twelve. And so that's in hindsight, I'm like that's pretty damn good at 53. Uh, my final tour event of the year, I finished 11th, which I you know I've been uh, improving throughout the year because I was getting back into shape for the tour. So to end with an 11th place finish on the pro tour, I, I am proud of it. That's amazing, man. No, I would uh, definitely be proud of that. That's a great feat. Um, so I kind of want to go back then uh, to like when you were like you were saying 2001, this <laughs> is when you took a break out of uh, your touring and stuff. Can you uh, maybe give us a hindsight or like give us a little insight into like where your life was before that, like, um, before you took this break and like what kind of made you go like all right it's time I need to take a break yeah so I toured <clears throat> please forgive me I don't know why I'm coughing uh, so I I toured basically off and on for about eight years and I actually started doing really well I, I was the first disc golfer to to buy a house playing disc golf uh, it, you know it was a condo <laughs> but I owned it well I was making payments on it but it was you know that was high level for a professional disc golfer um it was sponsorship deals i was running events but i was making a six-figure income for a couple of years in the in the late 90s so i was doing pretty well and then uh, in 2000 my daughter was born and i wasn't with my ex anymore but i didn't want to be i, I i've been it wasn't even a consideration i wasn't going to be touring I, I wanted to be home so i could raise my daughter mm-hmm. and you you know, I raised her 50-50 for, for years, and that was the focus. So I already knew at this point that I, I was not cut out for nine-to-five work, uh, that I would never be happy doing that. And so I started uh, a bunch of internet businesses that did very well. So I did really well in my internet businesses for, well, I was gone for 13 years, and I did really well for, like, the first 10. <laughs> <laughs> So my percentages were pretty good. Like if I was a like a free throw shooter, I'd be pretty good. But if I was in Major League Baseball, ten for thirteen is smoking. Uh, but the last three years went badly <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of people in the internet world. I was just one of the you know million people out there that went, oh, this is now going to be different. Okay, so when you left, it was mostly like a family thing that made you kind of want to leave. It was a hundred percent. You know, I, my, my, my back hurt. I was burned out. Uh, there were a lot of things that made it easier to make the decision, I guess. But the big one was just my daughter was born. I mean, that was my the most important thing was I wanted to be there to raise her. And I wanted to work from home. I didn't want her uh, to uh, be shipped off to a daycare every day. I wanted to be there to to raise her. And, and by the way, I know a lot of people out of necessity. That's what they do. And the kids turn out just fine. Um, it's just I wanted to be home. I wanted to be home with her. No, that's a that's a nice uh, thing I would say. And like, so when uh, I guess at that point you were kind of like, all right, touring is like a little too much for a family life because I get it. If you're kind of like constantly going all around the country and uh, 
like crashing on people's couches or just even just doing these tournaments that would be like pretty rough to raise a family yeah and well my daughter was in, in colorado too so like i was not going to be home yeah no that would have been uh pretty bad um so when you were talking about uh like uh, in your book you're talking about like addiction and recovery and stuff uh when did these kind of things pop up in your career well i i dabbled i had some uh, uh when I was younger, when I was a teenager, that, you know, drugs became part of my life for a couple of years, but I, I got out of that, like when I was 20 and it wasn't, you know, I never really looked back and was, uh, you know, I, you know, I never parted when I was touring. It was, it was, I was always clean and, and focused and trying to be the world champion. Right. Mm-hmm. And the first, you know, like 10 years or whatever amount of time when I was successful that, you know, I, I didn't use or party. But when the business started going badly, uh, that's, I made what I thought was an, (laughs) I can never say this without laughing, but I thought I was making a good decision, which was I'm working from home. I have some employees, but they, they work out of my basement. And I thought my business is failing. I'm getting behind on my mortgage payments. If I don't have to sleep, or at least if I don't have to sleep, you know, maybe every other night, I could get a lot more work done. And so there's, there's solutions out there. Ha, that can, ha, ha, ha. I really did have the, the pure motives when I started. I, I It's kind of like when a person, you know, starts on opioids because of an injury or surgery, right? I mean, like the, you don't start off because you're going to, you know, you know, become a drug addict. You start off because there's a reason to use this thing. And it does a very good job. I mean, I think for a little while, I was really effective without sleep. What I didn't take into consideration is that when you don't sleep, you start to progressively make worse and worse business decisions. Yeah. <laughs> the end result is you get a lot of work done, but you're not doing a good job. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happened. Like I started building, I got more websites up. I got more things done. I got more proposals written. And then... Uh, but they kind of all sucked, mm. and, and that's and then it, and then at that point, at some point, it's like, oh, now I just need to get high because I want to get high. But it, it, you know, it started off with good intentions. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet um, that recovery out of that must have been uh, interesting process. Well, it you know things got bad. I mean, you know the whole the whole gamut. You know, losing my home, not nowhere to live. You know, like I would say I was on the street, except we typically could find a place to stay, but it might be with a stranger in a hotel room. You know, I mean, that's like, it's, you know, there's no better or worse than anybody. Everyone's got a story that, that is bad. So it was bad. It was definitely not, I wasn't dabbling. Yeah, (laughs) I don't do it. I don't do anything half-ass. Right. So I was a world champion drug addict when I was doing, doing drugs Uh, or I was training for the world drug championships. I don't know. And this so, was this would have been like the timeline would have been around like 2012, 13. Is this what you're talking? Exactly. And it wasn't for a very long period, but it got dark really fast. And uh, the, the, the short story, um, I'll make it brief. But when I was at my absolute lowest and and by the way, I'd been out of the sport for more than a decade. I didn't pay attention to it. When I left the sport, I, I sold everything and just got out. I It hurt too much to even show up at a tournament and watch because that's where I you know, wanted to be. So I just completely disassociated from the sport. I mean, no one knew what, what happened to me. I just, I vanished. 
Um, I assumed everybody had forgotten about me. I never even considered that they still talked about me. I, I was gone. So when I was at my basically lowest, uh, uh, and at that moment, I am the biggest piece of shit on planet Earth. I'm just, I'm wrecking the relationship with my daughter. Um, nobody's going to love me. Like, like, I don't deserve to be loved. I mean, the whole thing, right? Depression. I wandered into a disc golf pro shop and I walk in and I look up and there's a poster of me on the wall. Wow. And I walked in and I'm like an autographed poster, right? Up on the wall. I was like, what the hell? I remember that. There's two customers in the store. Now I've been gone for like 10 years or 12 years. There was no internet back then. And the two customers in the store both recognized me and like lost their shit. And they started asking for my autograph. The person that worked there was like, oh my God, Scott Stokely's here. He runs to the back. I hear him yelling to the guys in the back, Scott Stokely's out front. And they ran out. And all of a sudden I'm like signing autographs and people tell me how like I was their hero. And like, it was like, I, I, well, first off, it's like imposter syndrome. I, in my mind, I'm thinking, but I'm a total piece of shit. You guys don't know this. <laughs> like, I not see who I actually am, but they didn't see that. They just saw Scott Stokely. And so I was like, it was the first time I'd felt good in, in, I mean, really good in several years and was without drugs. And so, like, I walked out the door and I'm like, I'm going to get off the drugs and, and become Scott Stokely again and go out on tour and, 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 and I'm going to get my identity back and my life back. And then I walked out the door and then, you know, probably within five minutes, I'm like, but first I need to get high. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not a movie. It doesn't work that way. Um, but I had the, the, the seeds planted. Like I, it was in my mind. I, I remember how that felt. Maybe I, maybe I could, maybe there's an out for me. That's and then that started the process of like, uh, that I could, I did, I could do this again. Yeah. Man, that's such a, yeah, that's an inspiring story. Like, I really know what you're saying. Like, once you get that seed planted in your head, like, okay, there is an out. Like, you might want to go out and be like, I got to get high again. But, like, that seed is there. And, like, you know, like, eventually that could definitely grow and take you out of that life, right? Oh, yeah. Well, the funny story was, is I didn't have a clue how I was going to stop doing the drugs. Because I wasn't going to just stop. That much I knew. When, when I had the drugs, I could make a plan to stop. But when I was off them, the, the desire and craving for the drugs superseded everything. So I knew I wasn't going to stop. Uh, but fortunately, um, there are four counties in Denver. And in three of the counties, I had traffic warrants. And the, the way it works is you go to court, you wait a couple of days. You, you know, even if it's just for like a running a red light, if you have a warrant, it's a warrant. You go to court. But if you have a warrant in another county, they're going to ship you to the next county. But they only drive like once a week between counties or something. So you have to wait three or four days before you get shipped to the next county. Wait three or four days. So it's going to be like a month in jail if you have like just three traffic warrants in three counties. And I was like, wow, you know, if I go to jail, I could probably get off the drugs. This is really, really going to suck. Uh, but I knew that that would be like it would I, like I could make this decision while high that I want to get off the drugs and then I would live with the consequences. And even if I regretted it too late, I'm in jail. And so <laughs> I went to the courthouse got as like probably as high as I possibly could out in front of the courthouse through what I had. I had drugs left, which I, I actually threw in the trash can. And I walked into the courthouse and said, Hey everybody, I got a warrant. Take me to jail. And then <laughs> that's the last time I did drugs. 
because it's you know kicking kicking drugs in jail is uh, it's I mean it's it's horrific and you get no sympathy because the guy next to you is kicking drugs too right so um, there's no sympathy there's no pity the, the guards don't like bring you a blanket and tuck you in like it sucks but three like I, I think I was just over three weeks that I was in jail and and uh, you know after a week the physical withdrawals are done and um, a couple more weeks you know you're you know I'm starting to feel healthier I'm eating three meals a day I'm actually feeling physically better. Mm-hmm. I got out, wanted to get high more than anything in the entire world, but I had enough distance from it where I'm like, yeah, I can get through it. And, uh, but the problem was, is that I wasn't happy. I got, I, first off, I had nothing. Where am I going to live? I got out of a job. I don't have a place to live. I burned bridges with my friends. So I didn't really have any outs. Um, so I, uh, like I had to like, just start from literally the bottom um, and after about a month of that month or two of that, of just like scrapping, I was like, look, I'm going to go back on drugs. This, this is too hard. This is, I, I like, like I'm living in the basement with like four other people were separated by curtains because someone's renting out like cots for like a hundred bucks. But it, I mean, it, it was better than getting high, but it was not a, a good life. And I'm like, this is, this is awful. And that's when I was like, I need to go out back on tour. That's all I got to do. I got to somehow figure out how to get a vehicle and, and hit the road again uh, mainly because what I wanted was I wanted to go to a town and have people go, Oh my God, that's Scott Stokely. Dude, you're my hero. Like I wanted that. I like, I wanted that drug. And I, and that's, that's what I did. I, I packed up and figured out how to get back out on the road and I never looked back. And when you got back into disc golf, like, was it just like your skills were just there? It just, you just picked up where you left off. No, no, not at all. No, God, no. It was, it was, uh, that was the delusion of thinking I could compete because I started off for the first nine months. Well, first off, I'd, I'd been practicing for several months, so I wasn't completely raw uh, before I hit the road again. And then I, I went out, um, I stayed with a friend out in North Carolina for the winter with a course on his property. So I had like another several months of practice. So I, I probably had five, six months of training, you know, you know, back in, you know, in getting in decent shape. Uh, but then I played in the open division against the pros for nine months. Didn't didn't win a single tournament. Had almost no success. And then finally realized that you know I'm like I think I'm 45 at the time that I was gonna I move up to the 40 and older division. And as soon as I moved up to the 40 and older division, I won my next five tournaments. Three of them big ones. One of them a major. And I'm like, oh okay. So when I'm playing against my age peers, like yeah, I was still damn good. I just wasn't good enough to compete with the kids. And mm. that was. Um, but when I started doing that, then I could start actually making not a lot of money, but enough. That's amazing. Oh man. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great story of like transformation, man. And I love how you like put yourself in jail to get off of, uh, like get off the drugs. That's like a pretty uh, cool thing. <laughs> oh, I thought it was funny. They didn't know what to think. I mean, I walked in, it wasn't even like a, a sheriff's station. It was like literally the courthouse. Like they're not even set up for this. And I just said, look, I, I, you know, like I just said, they, they said, okay, I guess, uh, have a seat over here. We'll call the cop to come pick you up. <laughs> you know, but you know, it, it, but that's what you do. I mean, I get. I mean, that, that's what that's what I not we do. That's that's what I do. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, and uh, I want to kind of like to touch a little bit on like uh, how you like you like really uh, have a couple like you have a program called Blue Power, which I thought was like just a really amazing thing that you do. <laughs> Um, you help people like with like 
autism acceptance but like you help a lot of people with different kind of special needs and like you get them out uh playing disc golf and stuff like um why uh why was this so important to you and like uh yeah when did this end up getting started up yeah so so the way this worked was that when i went out to start traveling i met a woman and this is how i got a vehicle to travel i met a woman who had a vehicle and i you know basically said hey you don't have to work and you can travel all over the country we're gonna be poor but you're gonna have a vacation and She's like, yeah, let's do this. And um, she had a, an adult son with autism back, back home that lived with her parents. Mm. I just got introduced to, well, I got to know her and, and respect how hard she had it. And so my initial idea was to try to do something honestly for her. Like I said, I'm going to do something for the autism community because she'll appreciate that I'm doing something for this community. And so I started running events for kids and adults with special needs while I was touring. So I would be playing tournaments, but during the week I'd go to a town and I would run an event for, uh, it, it started off just autism, but then it became Down syndrome and paraplegic and blind and, you know, it doesn't matter. Just anybody that that had a, a that we needed to adapt the game for. I called it adaptive disc golf. And I ended up running 270 events in 270 different cities over two years. Um, all of the events are were free for the kids and their families. I uh, I don't take donation. I still I, you you cannot donate money to what I do. If you if you ask at the end of the show to donate money, I'll tell you to donate to an organization near you. I do not accept money for for anything I do. Um, the reason why is because what I found was that like those good feelings and feeling good about myself is what was going to make me happy and make me keep me sober and do all these things and. As much as I loved be, being told I was great at throwing frisbees, I also got more validation from being told, "Thank you for helping my family. Thank you for what you did for my son or daughter. Uh, you're a good man. I respect you. I look up to you." Like, like those are the things that kept my brain happy. Mm. So I have, I have, and I still feel like if this was something I was making money off, you know, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with a, a nonprofit organization paying a, you know, a salary to the people running it. I mean, you, you got to keep the lights on while you're doing good stuff. Just, I'm not pooping on, on that at all. But for me, my motives were just a little bit different. Uh, I felt like if I accepted money for what I did, then it would negate, it would take away from the feelings I got knowing that I did it for free. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of self, in a way it's kind of self-serving, but that's, why so everything i did was free for the kids i did 270 events um when when the plague hit i started doing less uh because of the in-person events were difficult that's when i started donating all my prize money so for the last couple of years uh a hundred percent of the prize money i went at tournaments i just give the tournament director the name of an autism organization and they just donate my prize money direct some tournaments that's they don't want to deal with it they send it to me and i send it out but I just donate all my prize money, but that the reason for doing it is the same reason I did the in-person events is I just needed to do something that I felt good about myself. Um, I actually went out and I assisted at an event um, just two days ago for the, the Special Olympics um, uh, in North Carolina here. Um, that was not my own event. Uh, a kid by the name of Tyler Wozniak ran the event, but I came out and helped. But I love that. It's, you know, I do it for selfish reasons, though. I do it because I, I feel good when I do it. Yeah, well, like, I wouldn't even call it selfish, because, like, you talk about, like, 
your uh like desires with when you were doing drugs to like do drugs and then you came out of it and then you said you desired to uh have people like tell you how good you are at golf or disc golf and like uh like oh it's scott stokely so you could kind of desire that like little bit of fame but then you got this now where like it feels like you actually like just when you're helping people like it gives you like a more of a sustainable like good feeling right yeah. And the thing is now I'm doing really well and I'm successful. I'm not poor. I'm um, like, I'm killing it in my business and, and life. And so now it's almost, I don't want to say more important, but it's just as important as ever that I'm still doing stuff. So like I've already committed that next year, like next year I'm going to be doing the whole European tour and all my prize money in the European tour is going to go to local autism organizations in the country I'm competing in. Um, I still have to do this thing that just keeps me connected to uh, this. I don't know how to describe it. It's just this, this thing that I need to do that, that just, it gives me, and, and by the way, selfish is the right word. I mean, it's just that selfish doesn't mean bad, you know, mm. but my are selfish. One of the things, if I may rant for a second, please, my pet peeves is, people will shit on other people's reasons for doing good things because for some reason they got this idea that unless something is purely altruistic, which I don't even know if there is such a thing, then somehow it negates the, the positives that happen. And I think that's the stupidest thing ever. Like, I don't care why you do good things. Like if you don't, if you donate money for a tax write-off or if you put a hundred dollar bill in the basket at church, just to show off that you can afford a hundred dollars to the people in your, on your pew, or if you do it because you like to get social media likes, like, why does that matter? Like, if the end result is you're doing good things, don't, like, don't take away from that person's thing. Like, they're doing good, but let them do good. So my reasons are it makes me feel good. I, it, I'm not ashamed of the fact that when I post pictures to social media and people tell me how much they, they respect what I do, it makes me feel good. I'm not ashamed of that. And I don't think people should be. It's, it's you know selfish is not yeah no I, I i agree with you completely man uh that's so now you're gonna go do a european tour next year oh actually we're leaving in two weeks for third uh well I, i've been telling everybody like 18 months it's probably going to be more like 30 months uh the uh yeah we are we're leaving in um two weeks to go to australia uh to uh, for six weeks, New Zealand for a month, and then we're going to do Southeast Asia for four months. And then next year, those are all like small tournaments. I'm going to be doing clinics and teaching, uh, shooting content the whole way, right? Like about the world disc golf tour. But then next year, I'll be competing on the Euro tour, which is all the biggest events in Europe. And I'm going to get to spend the, you know, five or not five, what, maybe six, seven months in Europe just competing. Um, but <laughs> afterwards, after the season's over in Europe, uh, our plan is to, well, we want to go to, to, to either India and Africa, India and Sub-Saharan Africa, or maybe Egypt and Sub-Saharan Africa, probably not both. But, but either way, we're going to be playing, there's tournaments in Tanzania, Kenya, Ethiopia, and South Africa that we're going to go compete in. And I mean, you know, quotes around compete, the sport's brand new there, you know, but, but just go be a part of it. And then at the end of the year, like, why not do Europe again? So like, that's kind of our plan. Like um, I told you, we gave away or threw away everything we couldn't take with us. Uh, like, we're not going to like 
stop and get a, a home someday. Like we're going to just travel for the rest of our lives. So we have the whole world at our fingertips right now. Oh, that's amazing. Like, so can you give me an idea of like what mm. that mindset is? Cause like you said, you did like uh, when you had your earnings with uh, tournaments and stuff, you bought a house. So you lived that life of uh, having a successful business, a house, uh, that kind of material life. And now you're like, get rid of the possessions on the move all the time on the road all the time. And just now it's like, life is more about experience almost uh, like, I don't know. Can you give us a little insight into like the differences you've noticed? I, no, I, that's easy. I, and I'll like, I'll let's go big picture. I mean, <laughs> if I, if I may step onto my soapbox, you can't see it because it's audio only, but I'm currently standing on my soapbox. All right. Ha, ha, ha. I have, it took me 53 years. Well, maybe 51. I figured out the key to happiness. The, the spirit. Se- ha, 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 ha. Got it. Everybody, like, you know, it's the holy grail of, like, you know, podcasts. And, and <laughs> no, but I got it figured out. Is that what you need to do? And then this will I'll cycle back to the nomading and why it applies to me. But the key to happiness is you have to throw away every single preconceived idea that you've ever had or been given or told or taught about how to live life. You just have to wipe your hard drive clean. You know, everyone says, this is what relationships look like. This is what your career looks like. This is why you got to go to college. This is why you got to have a house. This is why, you know, doesn't matter what it is. It's all noise. And then you start from scratch and you evaluate, well, what do I actually want? You know, and, and, and you have to understand there's no right or wrong answer. As long as you're not hurting other people, there is no wrong answer. You know, you know, marriage in a, a monogamous heterosexual relationship that leads to children is not wrong for some people. But there's plenty of people that don't want to be or like, I mean, obviously a heterosexual relationship isn't for them. Or maybe they're heterosexual, but maybe monogamy is not for them. Or maybe they, they, they love monogamy with their heterosexual partner, but why would you ever marry? The marriage doesn't make sense, getting the government and the church involved. There's no right or wrong answer, but when you wipe it clean, you, you, you evaluate and say, well, what makes sense to me? And then when you figure out what makes sense, you go, oh, that's the relationship structure that makes sense. I'm going to pursue that, even if it looks differently than other people. And the same thing applies to career, college, home, living. You got to like start over and say, what, what do you like? Like, what, like, what do you love? What's important to you? And so even though I had traveled a bunch, I was never really happy at home. Like I don't like the biggest mansion and the nicest house and the biggest boat in the world. If I have to wake up and see the same wall every day, I want to kill myself. Like that's just, that's torture for me while understanding that's exactly what some people should be going for because that's their dream. The consistent home, the sleeping in their own bed every night, having the big boat, right? Nothing wrong with that. But for me, I realized that all I ever want to do is something tomorrow that I haven't done before. Mm. My entire life, it's like, what can I do that's new tomorrow? And if that's the way I, like, if that's what makes me happy, then I figured out that I needed to build a life where I could always do something new tomorrow. And I've toured the U S for 10 years. Like it's not that there's not places I haven't been to, but 
I've seen most of the U.S. And so then it became, well, there's a whole world out there of new experiences. Well, how can I do that? Well, then you start with what you want. What I want is to travel the world. I got a, a unique relationship with my partner that's the same relationship that she wants, and it's perfect for us. And she also is a full-time nomad, did it for years before me. So now it's like, well, how do we get there? Start with what you want. I'm going to travel the world. Well, I was I took my business and said, well, I do online. I do. I, I teach in person and and I do uh, in person seminars and coaching. Well, how can I start teaching online so I could travel? So that's what happened. Um, I need passive income. Well, then let me endorse products that will and but not run the warehouse myself. That way I make less money when I sell things, but I don't have to be in the warehouse. And then what I'm left with is complete freedom to live how I want to live, which is let's open up, oh, well, metaphorically, let's pull out the globe and go, I want to go there and then just do it. Now, I still work when I'm traveling in the next 30 months, I will still work probably 40 hours, 50 hours every single week. I, like, I had no trust fund. I, I'm still working. But when I'm done working, I can walk out the door or the grass door of the hut I'm in in Ethiopia and, and be someplace that I want to be. I don't have to be in a house. So I think that's the secret. You got to just start from scratch, figure out what works for you, and then figure out the, the like what it takes to get there. But don't listen, like don't listen to anybody else. I'm sorry. Don't listen to your pastor. Don't listen to your government. Don't listen to your teachers. Don't listen to your parents. Don't listen to your friends. Like like you are you, and and it, it doesn't have to look like anyone else. Nice. There, I told you, soapbox, but <laughs> and philosophy in a nutshell. That's it. It's an amazing philosophy. I love it. And I, I love how you said, like, you just got to get rid of those preconceived uh, notions of just what you want in life. And like, then that's where you can really find what you want. Because most of those preconceived notions are from your family, from your culture, from your society. So it's like, don't let those things tell you what you want. It's like, you have to find that yourself. Well, I got told when I was growing up that you had to go to college. Like that was the only path. I mean, you were going to be like, like destitute. If you didn't go to college, you're going to be a loser. If you don't go to college, not realizing that the very well-intentioned, hardworking people that told me that were part of the college system. Like, obviously you're, you're going to want to go to college. If you're part of academia, like that's like, it makes perfect sense. You know? And I'm like, but that's what I was told. You have to go to college. And I actually went to college for three semesters when I was 19 years old. And I'll tell you a quick funny story. This is basically the, the, the epiphany moment for me. Like I hadn't figured life out, but this is the first moment where I was starting to click what I wanted in life was that I was working the graveyard shift at, at Kinko's, which used to be this coffee store that ran, tw was open 24 hours. And I would run the graveyard shift at Kinko's and, but playing disc golf tournaments on the weekends. And I had a tournament coming up. Um, I'm in my third semester of college. I had a tournament coming up in like two months. I had earned a day off because you work every two months, you earn a day off or something, but I had earned this day off. And so I asked for a Friday off because of a tournament coming up in two months. And the, the, my, my manager just lays into me about how, oh my God, how am I going to replace you? No one wants to work the graveyard shift. I'm going to get stuck working it myself. And I don't remember what he told me, but he laid this guilt trip on me. And I'm like, like the whole time I'm thinking to myself, but I don't care about Kinko's. I care about my disc golf tournament. Like, I don't care about you. I care about my disc golf tournament. 
And, you know, eventually I, I like battled with him to get this day off and it left with him just wanting me to feel bad over it. And I, I, I walked out the door and, and I, it hit me. I said, you know, if I stay in college, I'm going to be having this exact same conversation in 10 years. I'll be being paid more money. But ultimately, someone else is going to have control over my life. And if someone else has control over my life, I'm not going to get to do whatever I want to do. And that's when I, I, I finished my semester. But then I dropped out of college and I said, I got to figure out how just to work for myself and, and just live my, my own life. Now, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. I certainly hadn't figured it all out, but I knew that's what I wanted. And I knew that I, you know, didn't want to work for anybody else. Like that was important to me. But that was the moment. That's a, that's a nice moment. And I like that. And uh, that's a great thing to fucking figure out at 19. I can tell you that much. <laughs> well, no, I had not figured it out because I had no idea to get there. And I spent many years poor and, you know, like, by the way, I mean, the funnest years of my life, but you know, they were, I was poor. Like I hadn't figured any, I, I, I hadn't figured anything out at 19 except what I didn't want, but I hadn't figured out how to get there. That took 40 more or 30 more years. <laughs> hey man uh no this is awesome dude uh i got one more question uh scott it's the name of the podcast uh you can answer any way you want uh but scott stokely god yay or nay uh that would be a nay for me uh i've i've yeah <laughs> i i think for me personally uh when i was very young i realized that, that you know, I had learned that snakes don't talk and people don't live to be 700 years old. And so any source of information that said those things, I, I did not believe. Hmm. I also knew people wrote books that weren't true. In fact, probably half the books ever written weren't true. So that was a very plausible explanation for the book. It was either someone wrote a book that isn't true, which we know books aren't true or snakes used to talk and people used to be 700 years old and people used to walk on water and die and come back to life three days later either all those radical things were true or someone wrote a book that wasn't true and, and it's just Occam's razor like there was one explanation that made sense to me uh, I will tell you before I lose my audience some of my audience who, who might be listening I have plenty of friends who believe that I love to death and we have no problem coexisting in the world I, I don't Everyone has to make sense of the, the world that works for them, according to my philosophy. And if that's what makes sense to you, I completely respect it. But just it's, it's not my paradigm. Hey, uh, nothing wrong with that, my man. Uh, hey, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this was amazing. Um, please let my audience know about your book and just about anything else you just want to promote. Let them know now, please. Uh, it's uh, Scott Stokely going growing up disc golf uh, it is a great book even if you don't follow disc golf uh, if I may add something about the book please uh, sure so this book actually got a silver medal at an international book award competition uh, bookreview.com gave it a silver medal for the category best autobiography uh, which was mind-blowing to me because the <laughs> the, the book that won was about some woman who escaped from 
uh, communist Russia, and she crawled underneath barbed wire fences and across minefields and through the muds and in the trunks of cars as she crossed borders with armed gunmen, you know, searching the car. And then she gets onto a cargo ship and hides into a crate as she crosses the Atlantic, you know, in these storms for like three months to find freedom in America. That's the gold medal book. And the, the silver medal book in the category was about a kid growing up playing Frisbee golf. Ha, ha, ha. So I was very flattered that they took they took it they took it serious enough to go hey this is really good so yeah so that's that's the book uh, scottstokely.net is where you can find out about my classes my teaching my special needs work um, you know and then if you search for Scott Stokely on any social media I'll pop up first um, so no problem finding there uh, if I was to actually be plugging anything it's my six month online disc golf class. Um, that is my focus at the moment that launches the next class launches in December. Oh, and by the way, I got to tell you something. I listened to your comedy, dude. You're good. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I will tell you this. Uh, that is a very big compliment coming from me because I am hypercritical over comedy. I, I'm the guy that just sits there with his arms crossed going, that's not funny. Why are they laughing? That, that person's not funny. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's happened to all of us. Why are you laughing? Just because it happened to you. Th there's no punchline. Like, like that's that's me, and then oh, and then I'll I'll listen to the next comedian. And I'll be like, yeah, you're a political comedian. Yeah, exactly. When you when you say something bad about that guy, fifty percent of the people in the world laugh because you're 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 saying something bad about that guy, but you didn't say anything funny or interesting or clever. So I'm a I'm a I'm a snob when it comes to I love comedy, and I'm a snob when it comes to comedy, dude. Your stuff is good, man. You're sharp. How long have you been doing it? Um, now I'm at like uh, thirteen years around there. <laughs> So that so you've been doing it a while, yeah, man. It's tight though. It's it's really good. It's clever. It's it has the the philosophical edge where you're like making people think. Like it's, but it's really good, man. I'm, I was really I, I look, I'll be honest. When I said a comedy's a, a comedian and I'm going to be on their show, I'm like, well, I will have a great podcast, but I'm you know I take it with a grain of salt. The word comedian, dude, you are good. So my audience listening, go ahead and plug yourself. Hey, <laughs> well, check me out, Newer Kid Why. Uh, follow me, Instagram, or just on my website, uh, and you can find all my uh, stuff. And I'm always touring, so hopefully I'm mostly around Canada right now, but uh, I'm hoping to jump into America in the next few years. Okay, so, and by the way, for my audience, uh, please spell Newer Kid Way, because that, <laughs> or Kid <laughs> like, uh, like, we're just gonna, like, I mean, I'll be honest, that's so close to just, like, closing your eyes and, like, typing and hitting keys randomly. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, it's uh, N-O-O-R-K-I-D-W-A-I. -I. Okay. <laughs> you just became on my, uh, uh, a part of my podcast at that moment, so... Yeah, I've never I've been asked to plug myself on my own podcast. Oh, I would hey, I I hey, I I have a reputation of being extremely honest with my audience. I would not tell people to check you out if you weren't funny. I would say I appreciate you and I respect you and I would be kind to you, but I would not tell people to listen to if you weren't funny. You're funny. So go go check check you check him out. Uh, thank right. you so much, Scott. And everyone, check out uh, Scott Stokely. Uh, check out his courses. If you want to get into disc golf, do that for sure. Check out his book. And uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast, my man. No, it was great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's great. All right. That was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at Newer Kid Y on Instagram. 
or check out my website, lurekidy.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, podcast network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay.